Good morning. My name is Joshua Torrey. I'm a ruling elder at Redeemer Austin. I have the privilege of reading and sharing from God's Word with you this morning. The Gospel reading comes from John chapter 6, starting in verse 59 through the end of the chapter. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The word that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you for all the mercies that you bestow upon us, including your word, which is essential for eternal life, that you give it and you offer it to us freely, and you compel us through your Holy Spirit to accept it and believe. We ask now that through this text you would encourage our hearts, enlighten our minds, and draw us closer to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said... Um, I'm a ruling elder at Redeemer Austin. I'm a good friend of your pastor, Tim Fox, becoming a good friend of your pastor, John Weller, as well. Um, And Tim reached out to Redeemer trying to fill up some preaching slots while he was going to be out of town. Um, And he said, send me your best preacher. (laughs) That guy was not available. (laughs) So Tim asked, fine, send me your best looking preacher. (laughs) That guy also was not available. So Tim said, well, just send Josh. And so here I am. Um, I want to open this word with you today. We have three points. We're going to try and get through quickly. Tim said I get 45 minutes, right? 45? An hour? Okay. That's even better. Um, We have three points this morning. It could have been two, but my Baptist background just busted in on my preparation. I had to add a third one, even though it's not really essential. Um... We have three points today. The word is difficult, the word is challenging, and the word of Christ is essential or compelling. So turn with me as we walk through, starting in verse 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he, was, as he taught at Capernaum. Unfortunately, we are diving into the conclusion of a very long discourse of Jesus. It's one of his longest discourses. Um, If you allow your eyes to scan over the rest of the chapter, you will recognize that this is shortly after Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, he begins a discourse on being the bread of life. Now, Jesus is 
launching into this discourse because he is critical of the people, specifically in verse 24 and 26. They're, they're seeking after him, but they're seeking after him for bread. And Jesus says, okay, I know you were coming to me for bread, but let me tell you about a better bread, the manna from heaven that you're that is greater than what God gave you in the wilderness and your people died. Your ancestors died. Jesus is kind of working the crowd up into a frenzy with his teaching, repeating over and over and over how he as the bread of life is greater than what they knew and had seen. The Jews begin disputing, you see in verse 52, disputing how he can say these things. And it's at the conclusion of all this teaching that we get our introductory verse, verse 59, or really the introduction to the text as we're going to cover it, which is verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, I think we would understand if the disciples said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? But that's not what the text says. The text says, who wants to listen to it? If you're a sports fan of any uh, variety, you might have a similar analogy experience when a referee stands up and proclaims a penalty or announces a penalty against your favorite team and costs them a game. You grumble. You know exactly what's being said, but you don't want to listen to it. Well, the Jews are doing this with Jesus' spiritual teaching. They fully understand what his teaching in the chapter entailed. They just don't want to listen to it. This is something that we tend to forget as Christians. The more we are acquainted with God's word, the truths of Jesus' teaching, we can sometimes forget that to a non-believer, to the unbeliever, the words of Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus, is a stumbling block. Or it's perceived as foolishness, as we heard read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The words of the gospel are only sweet to us because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That is when the teachings of Jesus transition from who can listen to it to Peter's acclamation or proclamation later in the chapter. We know you have the words of eternal life. So the disciples, back up real fast and make a qualification, it's important to recognize that disciples does not mean the 12. We're going to see that distinction in the text, and I read it to you. Um, the disciples have responded this way, and you would imagine Jesus, being the good teacher that he is, would want his disciples to understand, better understand what he's saying. And he does do that, but he does it in a very interesting way says in 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling, said to them, do you take offense at this? And then Jesus doubles down in verse 62 and 63 and 64. This is a, a challenging response from the words of Christ. They're Grumbling, they are complaining about it being hard to listen to. And instead of Jesus saying, well, let's, let's take it down a notch. Let's start back at the beginning and we'll work back up to this doctrine. He says, really? This is what bothers you? This is what offends you? 
How about if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The word that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. You're going to need to forgive me for getting just a little bit technical and quoting some, or referring to some other biblical passages here. Jesus, when he calls himself the Son of Man, ascending to where he was before, is trying to draw them to the acknowledgement that if they can't accept him as, a, as, a, as he is in front of them and his teaching, how are they going to understand it when he reveals his full glory as the eternal Logos, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity? We catch the reference to the Son of Man ascending to where he was before as part of his ascension after his resurrection. Jesus is alluding to the fact that if they are stumbling now, how much worse are they going to stumble after his ascension back to where he was when they understand his teaching that he was truly God? This phrase, the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, actually also is contained in the book of Daniel. If you recall, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel sees a vision of the Son of Man ascending to the one that's seated on the throne, and all dominion and power and authority is given to the Son of Man. Jesus is challenging them, saying, if you don't accept me as I am now, in this humbleness, how are you going to handle my word and my teaching when you see me as I truly am? Now, we actually do know how the people are going to respond. If you're familiar with the book of John, you know that in just a couple chapters, in some later discourse, Jesus is going to get very explicit about who he is, and he is going to say, I am. And the Jews respond by picking up stones, wanting to kill him. Jesus absolutely knows what's in their heart. His discourse has been hard for them to hear, and it's challenging, and Jesus just ramps up on the challenging. He also ramps up on the inability for us to understand. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but you do not believe. There's two ways we can understand verse 63 when it says the Spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all. It's possible that Jesus is trying to educate them on the reality of his discourse about eating his body and drinking his blood. That he is saying it's not really the material eating that is going to benefit you. It's going to be the spiritual aspects of that. But I think this is also a statement of the spirit has to come and quicken you. Otherwise, your fleshly intellect, your fleshly knowledge, your fleshly background is no help at all. I think that this can obscure a very practical question um, to ourselves if sometimes we don't take pride in those very same things. Our theological acumen, Presbyterians known for having very great theology and doctrine, our great preaching, our great background in church history or theology, and we need to remember Christ's words challenges us in our flesh. It is enlivened in us by the Spirit. But his word never ceases to challenge our flesh. 
This means that as we grow in Scripture, as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, as He reveals Himself more and more to us, we are always reliant on the Holy Spirit to move us into fuller understanding of who He is. We should expect then that the life of the Christian is one of challenges from the Word of Christ. It's never ceasing to be a challenge to us in our sinfulness and in our flesh. But Jesus drives this even just a little bit more on them when he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who would not believe. And he concludes in verse 65 saying, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, I already alluded to us Presbyterians being good on doctrine, and so many of us might find ourselves comfortable with this doctrine of the unconditional election of, of God, that the Father has called men and women from all the earth and all the world to himself, not because of anything we've done, not of any characteristics that we have, but because it is the Father's loving will to grant to us his goodness and his mercy. It should humble us, should make us grateful when we dwell on these doctrines. Instead of being things that we pound over heads, they should bring us to the cross and help us to acknowledge in humble reliance on God. The thing that is sad about this, and Calvin notes it very well, the ESV translates, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It could also be read this way, that no one can come to me unless it is given him by the Father. And Calvin notes how sad it is that this gracious invitation and gift is turned away from by his disciples. Hear from Calvin. It is a dreadful and monstrous thing that so kind and gracious an invitation of Christ could have alienated the minds of many, and especially of those who had formerly professed to belong to him. You can imagine a scene in the synagogue, or maybe they just came out of the synagogue, and they're surrounding Jesus, asking him questions, grumbling, complaining to one another, and Jesus is at the center, and he concludes saying, this is why none of y'all can come unless it's given to you. The free offer. And it's that, it's that sentence that causes his disciples to turn back and no longer walk with him. If you read early in the book of John, you will know that Jesus actually had a very proficient and efficient ministry of baptism. Jesus himself didn't baptize but his disciples baptized, and he had a, a large gathering. This is why uh, individuals were curious about the relationship between him and John the Baptist, as Jesus' numbers swelled and John the Baptist's numbers dwindled. We can imagine a scene of many hundreds following Jesus around from city to city, listening to his teaching. And it's at this point that a large majority of them turn around and walk away. To never walk with him again. You can almost imagine the scene of just Jesus and the twelve left. 
Everybody else has left. What would we expect Jesus to say to the 12 at that point? Turn to him and say, hey guys, I'm glad you're still with me. Or, hey, this is proof that I called you because you're still here. He doesn't do that. Verse 67 tells us, Jesus turned to the 12 and said, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Jesus is challenging not only his disciples, he's still challenging the 12, his faithful apostles, the ones who are going to be with him to the end through the resurrection and lead the charge of the church in the New Testament. And he turns to them and he asks the same question. Does this discourage you too? Is this too hard for you? Do you want to leave and go back to what you were doing? I don't know if the question was as short as we read. Do you want to go away as well? I don't know if maybe he said, hey, Matthew, do you want to go be a tax collector again? Make that money. Or Peter, hey, go back and fish. Run that business that you had with your dad. And we can hear maybe a moment of silence before Peter. It's always Peter, right? Peter just, Peter just assumes the role of the answerer for all of them. All but Judas. For we know where Judas is headed in the, in the sermon text and also in the discourse of the Last Supper. And Simon answers him, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, there's, just, there's nowhere. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I think in his answer here, Peter is actually echoing back the promises of Jesus to him. If we had time, we would read all of chapter 6 and all the moments where Jesus said, eternal life in my words, eternal life when you eat my flesh, eternal life. The one that stands out the most, sorry, got to change my, my page here, otherwise I'm not going to be able to find it. The one that stands out the most is verse 47. Where Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And Peter is saying right back to him, we know you have those words. You alone have those words. And we have believed them. Where else can we go? There's nothing left. When you see the exclusivity of Christ's words, the essentialness of Christ's words, the worthlessness of everything else becomes more and more clear. The more convinced by Christ's teaching, the more belief we have in him, the less important everything else is. To the point where Peter can say, Lord, or where else can I go? Where else can any of us go? But I want you to understand, Peter, Peter is not finding a loophole around the idea that it must be granted to him. I want you to understand that Peter in this answer, when he, when he 
has this emotional response, when he has this confession of faith, he's not making a new way to be saved. This isn't law. If you're familiar with the traditional distinction between the law and the gospel, the law tells you what you're supposed to do. The gospel tells you it has been done for you. Paul's, or Peter is not creating some new law that we need to follow and we all need to have this same emotional experience and confession. Yesterday, my wife asked me to move a couch out of our guest room. It was a very large couch, had to take the door off the guest room um, entrance. And I had to spin it about three times before I could find the perfect angle that would get it through the door. Peter is not trying to sneak into the doors of heaven with his confession here. It really is all the work of the Holy Spirit and the Father giving it to him. But Peter experiences the outflowing reality of that work. Peter's emotional response, Peter's confession of faith and belief stems out of that work of the Holy Spirit. It's compelled out of him by the Holy Spirit. And then we see the answer that we would have expected maybe back in verse 57. Now Jesus answers them and says, Did I not choose you? Did I not choose you? Peter, the reason you have this feeling about me Peter, the reason why you know there is nowhere else to go is because I chose you. If we continue on verse 70 and 71, it kind of gets to become a downer of a sermon. So we're going to set that aside. Other than to say that things do not bode well for, for Brother Judas. But I want you to think back to where this discourse is coming from. I want you to think back. This discourse is all stemming around Jesus' teaching on what will, ne- will become known as the Lord's Supper. If you're familiar with the book of John, you know that there actually isn't a Lord's Supper scene in the book of John. Not the way that Matthew has it. This is the discourse, the significant discourse on the Lord reinstituting that Passover meal and teaching them that he must be the one that is eaten. That he is the true flesh for food. His blood is the true drink for eternal life. And you can imagine that the disciples don't really fully understand this yet. In fact, in some ways, we now, in front, in, at this time, have a better understanding than they did at that time. We know what Jesus is referring to when he says that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. We have seen it because it's laid out in front of us. It calls to us every week and asks us, is there somewhere else you want to go? Or are you ready to come to Christ, recognizing the truth of Christ's teaching In this section, that his body was broken for you. As your sins were placed on him in judgment, his body under that judgment broke. That in that time on the cross, he bled. 
He bled to initiate a new covenant for us that we may know with certainty our standing with the Father. And just like Jesus' words were hard then, sometimes we can have a hard time listening to it now. They are still challenging to us. But with Peter, we can say, with a little bit more knowledge than even he had at that time, Lord, where else can we go? We're going to have an opportunity to take the Lord's Supper again today. Sometimes we feel we're not worthy. You know, Joshua, I'm just not feeling, I'm not tracking with Peter this morning. There are some other places I want to go right now. And that's okay. It's good to remember that Peter did not stick with the Lord the entire time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter did not profess Christ when he was asked during the trial of Jesus. Peter did actually go back fishing after the resurrection for a little while. But eventually on Pentecost, Peter said the exact same thing in his actions that he confessed with his mouth right here. Lord, to whom shall we go? And we have the same privilege to answer like Peter when we come in faith to the table. We hear the voice of the Lord. We hear the promises of the forgiveness of sins. We're compelled by the Holy Spirit to come and eat. At this table, we find our belief, our eating, and we have eternal life. And where else can we go but to this table where our Lord has called us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you mightily for your Son, who in his ministry calls us not to believe in ourselves, but to believe in him, to believe on him, to not put our faith and trust in ourselves, but to put it solely on him, to reconcile with our minds the difficulties of his teaching, to reconcile with the heart the times that we are not inflamed and passionately reliant upon him. But we thank you that he does not desert us, for he has chosen us, and he feeds us regularly with his word and with his body and blood. We thank you that you have given us a place to go. We ask all this in the name of your son. Amen.